Today we come to the end of our study of Second Peter. And in reality, it is the end of our study of both First and Second Peter. The first letter was written from Jerusalem, while the second, uh, probably from Rome, where Peter will shortly be martyred. Knowing that his time is short, Peter is concerned to prepare the church. As we saw in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus has made it clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. What Peter wants the church to remember is that there is a double threat. From outside, there is persecution, and from inside, heresy and false teachers. Clearly, uh, Peter, or any other religious leader for that matter, cannot prevent persecution. What he can do and what he seeks to do in First Peter is to instruct and prepare God's people to deal with persecution. And not primarily how to be brave in the face of persecution. Um, we had an expression in my house when Lindsay was growing up that would say you need to be brave of it. And Peter is not writing First Peter to say to the church, you need to be brave of it. You need to be brave in the face of persecution. Rather, what he talks about in First Peter is that we need to understand that hostility and persecution and difficulties are not a reflection of moral failure on our part or a lack of faith on our part. That's not why persecution happens. And so he writes that they will understand that the pattern of righteous people who suffer is a pattern we find in the Old Testament. We find it supremely in the Lord Jesus, but we see it in the life of the church. So they should not be discouraged or overwhelmed when they are confronted with hostility and persecution. As he writes the second letter, he is about to face his own martyrdom, and the truths of what he had written in the first letter will now be lived out in his own experience. And how sobering that must have been. It is one thing to affirm the truth with words. It is another thing to live them out in practice. Tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. That's how he was martyred. The suffering righteous. It's not a lack of faith. It's not because of some moral failure on his part. Peter understood that. As Peter writes his second letter, there is a second danger, another danger that confronts the church, and one that his readers might be slow to catch or fail to recognize as really a deadly danger. See, when persecution happens, one would assume that the church would grow closer together, the congregation would become more closely knit. And I think it would be difficult to realize that in those difficult circumstances, you might actually have people within the congregation who are not believers in Jesus, who are not believers in the truth. In the same way that in First Peter, they might see persecution as a reflection of some failing on their part, like questioning their status before God, 
they might in Second Peter perceive the success of these false teachers, these heretics, as a sign or validation, a proof that these people are speaking the truth, that somehow they are genuine. He has written the second letter to say that that is not the case. As he closes the second letter, there is an important question we came across in chapter 3. What kind of people ought you to be? And as we've seen in the past two weeks, Peter writes to his readers, you ought to live holy and godly lives. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Peter wrote this in the context of the coming judgment, the renewal of all things, and the new heaven and new earth. Today we will look at verses 17 and 18, the last two verses of his second letter. But in reality, I see them as concluding not simply 2 Peter, but 1 Peter as well. Look, if you would, as I read. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. I think two words would help us to remember what he writes in these last two verses. They both start with G, and they're both in the verses. Guard and grow. That the Christian is to be on his or her guard. The Christian is also to grow. Look at verse 17. As it begins, familiar matters come to the forefront. We would expect this. We're at the end of the letter. He's wrapping things up. And so certain things are now familiar to us. The first is the word therefore. He's drawing a conclusion based on what he wrote earlier. He refers to them as dear friends. The English Standard Version, the King James Version, have beloved. We saw this at the beginning of chapter 3. And I mentioned this as we began it. Uh, that four times in this last chapter he uses this word, uh, agapetoi, from agape. I think it is clear, and, and Peter wants to make it clear, that he sees a deep bond between himself and the people to whom he is writing. And after what he wrote in chapter 2, which seems rather harsh, they may need some reassurance. But one more time at the end of his letter, one more time, they need to be reminded that Peter loves them. That is why he writes this letter. Then he says, since you already know this. I've said this several times in the past few weeks, that Peter, as he closes his letter, is coming full circle a number of times. As I read to you earlier, um, in chapter 1, he said, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them. When we went through that passage, I mentioned that in the NIV we have the three R's that he wants to remind them, he wants to refresh their memory, he wants them to remember. And when we went over it, I mentioned that remembering is not only or even primarily an individual activity. It is to be corporate. It is to be communal. We as a congregation, as the people of God, are to remember. and I have noticed um, in our advancing years that it's good that we have each other because I only seem to remember half of the things and she remembers the other half and together we seem to get most of it. Well, as God's people, we need to have the same attitude 
that we need to be reminded, we need to remember together it is to be a communal activity. But you'll notice that there are two things about memory, about remembering, and we saw this when we went through chapter 1. First of all, you have to know something in order to remember it. If you don't know it, you can't remember it. If you don't know it, you can be taught it, you can be told it, but you cannot remember it because it isn't part of your consciousness. And secondly, one must be firmly established in the truth. See, without these conditions, Peter is not reminding, he is instructing. And without these two conditions, we face the dangers of innovation, we want something new, but then secondly, the danger of heresy, which he talks about in chapter 2. Thus, one is to be firmly established in the truth. And so here at the end of the letter, it seems it might seem a bit strange, Peter says, you already know this. It's like, well, then why did you write this letter if we already know this? Well, sometimes we need to be reminded. And so he writes this letter to do that. But he continues in verse 17, Since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. Because his readers already know what they know, what he has written in this letter, they are to be on their guard. We are as God's people as well. Because there are at least, uh, there's a twofold danger. The first is there are those who would seek to carry away the believer into error. These are the false teachers. Even without these people, there's a second problem, and that's us, our fallenness. In the words of the hymn that we sang earlier, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We should not imagine, we should not begin to imagine that on our own we can stand firm in the faith. God has given us his spirit. We need his spirit to stand firm. We need each other to stand firm. We need to be on our guard. And there needs to be a recognition that such a danger exists in every generation of the church, and I would say in different forms in each generation of the church. I do think it's human nature, but I just think that as time goes on, People in the church imagine that dangers do not really exist. They, they might seem so unlikely um, as to really not be a danger. Certainly, I think if I could project backwards, if I was in the first century and I'm reading this letter from Peter, um, it's a time of persecution, a time of hostility. All I'm thinking about is all of this hostility from outside the reality that there might be a problem inside the congregation would almost seem unreal. It would seem hard to imagine that in the face of persecution you would have false teachers trying to lead people astray. But that in fact is the case. Coming to the end of the letter, we see Peter saying something that he's been saying throughout this letter. He writes of the error of lawless men. And when he writes this, we might get the wrong idea. Let me digress a bit, because when we went through Galatians, uh, I recall in verse number 6 of chapter 1, 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. When we think of heresy, false teachings, or apostasy, I think our focus is more impersonal than it is personal. Heresy is seen as adherence to a religious opinion contrary to church dogma, an opinion or doctrine contrary to church dogma. These are all dictionary definitions. Dissent or deviation from a dominant theory, opinion, or practice, or an opinion, doctrine, or practice contrary to the truth or to generally accepted beliefs or standards. Apostasy is defined as denunciation of one's religion, principles, or cause. As I said then, I would say again, and I said this of Paul, he would reject all of these definitions, and I think Peter would as well. To Paul, it is all personal, and it is all relational. They are deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. And I think if we understand this, then it will open up not only what Paul has to say to us, but what Peter does, and in fact, in all of Scripture. See, otherwise, we will see theology, good or bad, as primarily theoretical, as abstract, as philosophical. What does Peter have to say about heresy? We saw this in chapter 2. It has to do with behavior. I would have expected in chapter 2 sort of a theological repudiation of the the this is what we believe, this is what they believe, this is why they are wrong. And instead, he talks about their behavior. They are lawless men, he says here in verse 17. By the way, the word lawless has appeared earlier in this book in chapter 2. When Peter wrote of the judgments of the past, judgment of angels, the flood, and then of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you look at chapter 2, uh, verses 6, and 7, and 8. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. It's behavior. We think more in terms of ideas rather than behavior. I think it's both. But it is interesting that as Peter makes his case, he doesn't focus on the ideas as much as he does on the behavior. When it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah, however, and lawlessness, I, I think we need to realize that lawlessness is not primarily about sexuality or deviancy. Um, in Ezekiel 16, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. It isn't just about sexual immorality. It is about the fact that they were haughty and arrogant and were unconcerned about those in need. Lawlessness means going contrary to what God intends. One writer put it this way, heresy begins by the decision to change the way of our lives. Once the decision has been made to disobey, human nature searches out some basis to support the willful acts. At this point, truth is twisted and pressed into service for a deviant lifestyle. Another adds, 
These are lawless men and their intellectual errors are the fruit of their willful choices spawned by greedy and arrogant slavery to depravity. It begins in behavior. Now, I think this is sort of counterintuitive because the you know, history of ideas, you know, that, that it's, it's what people think and then that sort of comes out in their behavior. But when it comes to heresy, I think Peter would say it begins with their behavior and then they somehow have to justify it from scripture, from teaching, from tradition, whatever, and that's where the false teaching comes in. If we are not careful, we will limit error and orthodoxy, the bad and the good, to the spheres of information, ideas, the abstract. In reality, it begins in the realm of behavior. Now, when Peter says that we are to be on our guard, he is not saying that we should adopt a uh, sort of a fault, sign, uh, fault finding or mean spirited or critical approach or attitude toward other people. In the words of Jesus, that I still find troubling and not altogether certain about, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. There is to be a certain wisdom about us and yet a certain innocence about us as well. But please keep this in mind. If there wasn't real danger, we wouldn't need Peter to warn us about the danger. The danger is real, and therefore he tells us to be on our guard. We are to be on our guard so that you may not be carried away and fall from your secure position. Two times in this letter, Peter has used the word therefore, drawing a conclusion. The first is in chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never fall. The sentence continues, by the way, in the next verse, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse number 12, so I will, remind, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I find it striking that both passages deal with security, of being secure, of being sure. You will never fall, that you are firmly established in the truth. In verse 16, which we looked at last week, Peter wrote about ignorant and unstable people. In chapter 2, he wrote of the false teachers that they seduce the unstable. And this isn't simple name calling. Rather, it points to the real dangers that the people of God, us, need to be aware of. We should not imagine that we are impervious to such dangers. I, if I were to take a, a poll today after the service and to say, how many of you think that you, you might one day end up in a cult or that you might one day walk away from the truth? I don't think any of us would want to say yes. We, we just cannot imagine that. Well, we need to be on our guard. We should never forget what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. A secure position. I find his choice of words here to be interesting. It's the same root word from which we get the participle in chapter 1, verse 12, firmly established. But it's also the same root word as the verb that we hear in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. 
And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And there is the word strengthen. The question naturally arises, can a Christian lose his or her salvation? To me, the answer is self-evident, no. It is a gift from God. But having said that, in the same breath, I have to say, I cannot ignore the warnings in Scripture. I cannot ignore the examples in history of those who have walked away from the Christian faith. Those who have been carried away from the Christian faith. Again, it is worth noting the vocabulary used here. Peter uses carried away. It's the same word that Paul uses about Barnabas in the book of Galatians. That Peter and Barnabas were carried away by the hypocrisy when the men from Jerusalem came up and they would no longer eat with their Gentile brothers. None of us is immune. We should not imagine that we are. None of us is perfect. We need each other to stand together. We can't do it on our own. So we are to be on our guard. The second thing is in verse number 18, we are to grow. We are to be the growing Christians, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The best way that we can be on our guard, verse 17, is that we are to do what Peter says in verse number 18, and that is to grow. If we want to prevent being carried away and falling from our secure position, then we are to grow. We are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But what does this mean? What does it mean? First of all, grow. Let's take that verb. We need to understand that God intends that all Christians should grow. And what does growing mean? Well, there are a number of things, but there is to be change. There is to be development. We are to grow in strength. We are to show strength. We are to show energy. We are to advance. We are to deepen. We are to mature. This is our calling as the people of God. As we see in creation, so we should see in our lives the process of growth. But then the second thing is that we are to grow in grace and knowledge. What does this mean? Well, to me, as I've said numerous times, Peter has come full circle from chapter 1. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. These are the graces in which we are to grow. But Peter said, for this very reason, and what is that reason? If you go to chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, his divine power has given us everything we need for life. It's a staggering statement. It was when we went through it. It it remains that way. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. God, through Jesus, has given us everything we need for life through our knowledge of him. Life means growth. It means growing. 
With regard to knowledge, where to grow in grace and knowledge, I'll deal with knowledge first and come to grace. We've talked many times, but in Scripture, knowledge is always personal and relational. It's always personal. We don't think that way in the modern world. Um, we think in terms of a fact is a fact is a fact. And if I know the fact, I know it. And so there's no, I have no relationship with that. I simply know that fact. That's, that's just the way it is. In Scripture, it's quite different. There is a relationship between the knower and the thing known. To put it in modern terms, I think Peter would say it is not enough to have information. One must act on that information. That information is to create formation in our lives. It is to change who we are. So we're to grow in knowledge, but we're also to grow in grace. And what can Peter intend by this? Let's be clear that when we put our faith in Christ, we are declared righteous. We are pardoned. We are united with Christ. We can't be declared more righteous. Okay? We can't be more forgiven than we are. We can't be more united with Christ than we are. What Christ has done that's it. But God's plan is, having been forgiven and been declared righteous, we are now to grow and to be transformed into the image of God's Son. Simply put, we are to grow in grace. It means that there is to be an increase in the degree, the size, the strength, the vigor, the power of the graces which the Holy Spirit has already given us. Every grace, the graces are, lift, are listed there in chapter 1. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. These have been given to us by the Spirit. And we are to grow. We are to grow. We were talking about this at the Bible study Wednesday night that sometimes, and I think we do this with a clear conscience, I don't think it's malicious in any way, but oftentimes we ask that God would fill us with his spirit, that he would pour out his spirit on us. I certainly have prayed that way. But I can't help but wonder if sometimes that is sort of a cop-out because instead of wanting to grow in process, we want God to snap his fingers and change who we are. We, are, we have the Spirit. We have the fruit of the Spirit in us. We are, those things are to grow in us. And we are to make every effort to add these things in our lives. This is what Peter tells the people to whom he is writing. But we've not come to the end of the letter yet, have we? I said earlier that there are two key words to help us remember what Peter is saying here, guard and grow. But there is, in fact, a third. Strikingly enough, it starts with G as well, and that is glory. The glorious Christ. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. I don't know if you remember because it's been several months now, but in the first verse of this letter, Peter speaks of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
he again comes full circle here at the end of his letter. And we may miss something because it is so familiar to us. Peter has been and is referring to Jesus as God, as divine. We're like, well, of course. But let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 42. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. For many, it was very difficult. They could not imagine that it would be correct as a believer in God to refer to Jesus as God. But that Jesus is God is very clear to Peter. He wrote about this in the first chapter. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. These words, I think, are all the more striking. If you remember the night before Jesus was crucified, when Peter was asked, I thought I saw you with him. Aren't aren't you with him? He answered, I don't know the man. Obviously, Peter was restored. And now as he writes these last words, he knows who Jesus is. Jesus has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. Shortly after Peter writes these words, he will be dead. He will be martyred. And, and why is it? Why is it that Christians in the first century were put to death? Because they said two things about Jesus that were supposed to be said about the emperor. They said he is Lord and he is Savior. That's, that was, you were supposed to say that about the emperor. And early Christians, including Peter, said, no, Jesus is Lord and Savior. And for that, they were put to death. I like Second Peter. I've enjoyed our study. But I fear that in studying a letter like this, we may learn a lot of information But our focus may shift to ourselves away from the Lord Jesus Christ. We may become so engrossed in guarding against false teachings, growing as God's people, that we will forget it's not all about us. That it is, in fact, about our worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, we are to be on our guard. The danger is very real. Do not imagine that it is not. And we are to grow. This is our calling as God's people. But it must begin and end with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where you get so engrossed with doing 
what I would say are correct things, Christian things, that somehow God gets pushed out of the picture. It's so ironic. We want to be better Christians. We want to grow in grace. And then somehow Jesus gets put, pushed out of the picture. Here as we come to the end of our study of Second Peter, let us remember he is the beginning and the end. In him all things hold together. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, help us as we leave this place to take these truths home with us, that we are not immune. We should not imagine that we are to stand alone, but we need to stand together. We are to remind each other. As a congregation, we are to be on our guard. And we are to grow. We are to learn we are to put the things we learn into practice. But above all, may we remember that it is to bring glory to the Lord and Jesus Christ. It isn't about us. It's about the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The beginning and the end. The one in whom all things hold together. I thank you for the time we've had to go through First and Second Peter. May you, by your spirit and in our readings, remind us from time to time of the things that we've learned. May we remember. I thank you for this time, this day that we could gather to worship you. In many ways, a day of remembering. It's Resurrection Day reminds us of who Jesus is and what he has done. It reminds us that you are our Father and that you have given us the gift of your Spirit. May your Spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name.